Let's turn to 2 Peter. Chapter 1. I think we're going to finish it today. In fact, I know we are. How's that? Determination. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we left off last week in verse 16. I do want to back up and read verse 16. And then all the way to the end of verse 21. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so actually, even though we covered verse 16 last week, a key word here in this passage is the word eyewitnesses. And now Peter goes into specifics about what he and the other apostles saw and heard. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We thank you for all your blessings for us individually, for our families, for our church. We thank you for this beautiful new uh, backdrop for our sanctuary, all the hard work that's been done. We ask you to bless everyone that's been involved in this. And we ask now that you'd bless this time of study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 17 for he, Jesus obviously, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. And that voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Of course, this event which took place at the baptism of Jesus is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I believe. But I'm going to read from Matthew 3 beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so this is the event that Peter is referring to here. Such a voice came to him, to Jesus, from the excellent glory. So not just any voice, but the voice of God from heaven. Peter and the other apostles literally heard the voice of God. That was the whole point. At this baptism of Jesus, God the Father was publicly confirming and affirming his status as the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I love the name for God that Peter uses here. It's an unusual one. 
But it takes so many names to describe God. No one name can do it. But I love this name that Peter gives him here. He calls him the excellent glory. Isn't that cool? I really like that. And so the Father, we see all three members of the Trinity, by the way. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. We hear God the Father from heaven speaking. And we see the Son of God as he comes up out of the water. And that really was his inauguration for public ministry, of course, before he would actually launch his public ministry. He would spend 40 days and nights in the wilderness fasting, praying, being tested or tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. So when Peter speaks here in verse 17 about the honor and glory bestowed upon Jesus, this is what he's talking about. This public verbal affirmation, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes on and gives us another example. In verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the lights. So this is a preview of coming attractions. We see this even amplified more in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where Christ has eyes like flames of fire, snow-white hair and beard, and so forth. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So not only do they see Jesus transfigured, they see two of the most important figures from Old Testament history, Moses and Elijah, standing there with Jesus, alive. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, you think? <laughs> if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So Peter's really just kind of babbling on here. He's just so blown away by the whole scenario. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So when Peter says, eyewitnesses, he's not kidding. Very few people in human history have been privileged to hear the actual voice of God. Now you and I are blessed in that as New Testament believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit living inside of us, we are able to hear that still small voice, that inner witness. And I was just talking to someone the other day, talking about how they heard God speaking to them in their, in their mind. And of course, we have to be careful. We always need to make sure that uh, those things that we believe we're hearing line up with Scripture, line up with the Word of God. But God does speak to us, but not in this literal, audible way that Peter and the other apostles heard God speak. And so when we talk about eyewitnesses, not only seeing, but hearing as well. So very reliable source we have in Peter, James, John, 
the other New Testament writers, and even Paul, who was not there as part of the original 12, had an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and also heard the audible voice of Jesus Christ speaking to him, which was what enabled him to lay claim of the title Apostle. Because one of the requirements of an apostle is you had to have seen the risen Christ. Now in verse 19, Peter calls on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Again, they were eyewitnesses spending three or three and a half years with Jesus watching as the prophecies unfolded before their very eyes. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed or made more certain. And all prophecy is confirmed when it's fulfilled, right? This phrase could also be translated as we have the prophetic word as a surer confirmation. And arguably, an eyewitness account is very strong. We've just read about that, verses 16 through 18. But there's an even stronger confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was and is. The written scriptures are even more trustworthy than the personal experience of the Apostle Peter. And I think most of us already know this. It's interesting as I say that. It's so funny when you watch the latest buzzwords, the latest trigger phrases going around. There's a university in Bath, England, Bath University, and they've now told their, their professors, their teachers, they can no longer use the phrase, as you know. Now last week we talked about this, how Peter kind of does that in this book of his when we talked about being reminded. Peter says, I'm reminding you. So the assumption, don't worry. <laughs> the assumption is, if Peter's reminding you, you already knew it, but maybe it had kind of drifted to the back of your mind, right? And so one of the most important aspects of teaching and preaching is simply reminding God's people of things they've already heard, but with everything going on in our lives, sometimes those things get pushed to the back burner. And so I said, well, one of two things. If you did already know it, then it's good to be reminded. And if you didn't already know it, by saying, by Peter saying this, by me saying this, I'm reminding you, and you're sitting there thinking, well, what do you mean reminding me? I didn't know that. Well, then hopefully it will spur you on to be more diligent in the scriptures so that the next time somebody says, I just want to remind you, you can go, I knew that. That's a good thing, right? Well, according to Bath University and their diversity department, it really, it hinders students. It makes them feel bad when you say the phrase, as you know, because not all the students know. And so by saying, as you know, you're, you're, making, you're lowering their self-esteem and their self-worth because they're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know. This is a true story, folks. So the teachers, the professors at Bath University are no longer allowed to say, as you know. But here, we can still say it. 
as you know. Well, I don't know. Then find out. And that was the point that Tucker Carlson was trying to make on Fox News. He says, well, isn't it a good thing when you show students that there are things they don't know because aren't they there to learn? Aren't you here to learn? Again, an eyewitness account is a powerful thing. But even more powerful are the scriptures themselves, and that's why Peter now goes to this next point. We have the prophetic word confirmed or made more certain. We have the prophetic word as a surer confirmation. In other words, I'm an eyewitness, but if you don't want to take my word for it, then take God's word for it. And as, as you know, <laughs> at least some of you know, I think, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, which were all fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. And the mathematical possibilities of any one man doing that are astronomical. And it's not like Jesus carried a list around in the back pocket of his robe. Okay, we covered that one. It's because he really is the Son of God. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, and then Peter says, which you do well to heed. So Peter uses an idiomatic expression here, which means you ought to do this. The reader would do well to pay close attention to the confirmation of God's prophetic word in the person of Jesus Christ. And sadly, that's, a, that's something a lot of people don't do, as we've mentioned recently. A lot of people base their ideas, their opinions, their theology, if you will, or lack thereof, not upon the truth of God's Word, but upon second-hand, third-hand, fourth information, the opinions of others, whatever kind of negative information they've been fed from the media, the movies, the TV, so on and so forth, about who God is or isn't. But if they would really take the time to look at the prophetic word made more sure, the confirmation of who Jesus is based upon thousands of years of prophecies, they would do well to take heed to that. And we all would. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, so on, Moses, Elijah, by the prophets. He spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. And again, the prophetic word confirmed by the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world so again the writer of Hebrews which we believe is Paul is confirming what Peter's saying here he's saying that in under the first dispensation if you will if you want to use that word under the old covenant God spoke to his people through the prophets and then in these latter days, he has spoken even more clearly through his son Jesus Christ, who is the confirmation 
of these Old Testament prophecies, which you do well to heed. It's sad because it really, to ignore the irrefutable, indisputable, factual basis of these prophecies and the fulfillment of them by Jesus Christ, to not take heed to them is a foolish thing because there's no other religion, no other religious leader in human history who can match this. Those that would try to say our Christian faith is based upon blind faith or that we're brainwashed. But here's the deal. We are living in a world, and you already, as you know, I'm probably going to use this all the time now. You talk about triggered. When they do stuff like this, I get triggered. And I'm not talking about Roy Rogers either. Or am I? <laughs> I got so funny there, I lost my train of thought. Too big for your britches. We live in a world that is increasingly irrational and illogical. Do you know that? Let me give you an example. I don't know if I, I don't think I mentioned this yet. Maybe I did last week, but if not, it could bear repeating, I suppose. We have all this gender stuff going on now, right? And all these terms, I don't even know who could keep track. The latest, there's 37 genders, supposedly. And there's what, Z and Zo and all these neutral terms. I don't even know how you would know if you're a Z or a Zo. But the latest is with babies. Now what they're telling people now, and again folks, this isn't just some tiny lunatic fringe. This is people within the mainstream of our society putting forth these things. We ought to be concerned. They're saying now that gender has no significance, no relevance until a child is four to five years old. They're basically neutral. Irregardless of plumbing. In fact, my wife had a discussion with some of her millennial co-workers at a local restaurant about this subject. And one of the young ladies said, Georgie, it, it doesn't, it's not what's on the outside that matters, it's what's on the inside. That's a totally irrational, feelings-based mentality. Because without getting too graphic, what's on the outside is connected to what's on the inside. Ladies, we all know you have a reproductive system, right? So it is a matter of what's on the inside. It's biological, physiological, it's irrefutable, and to say otherwise is irrational and illogical. But what they're telling us, okay, so these babies, they're gender neutral till they're four to five years old. And so they're calling them now, they said instead of calling them babies, you can call them babies. <laughs> this is for real. Babies. And then when the child is four to five years old, you let them decide what they are. 
Now we're laughing, folks, but this is where our world is going. People would do well to take heed to the Word of God, would they not? Because the truth, Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's Word, God's truth, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God can make you smart. The world, the flesh, the devil will make you really, really stupid. And you're witnessing it before your very eyes. One more. It's also now abusive to change your baby's diaper without asking their permission. I don't make this stuff up, folks. I'm not crazy. I would never think of these things. So, to slam your baby down on the changing table and rip off his diaper and wipe his rear without first asking him if it's okay. I'm serious. I mean, I, I don't believe it, but this is really going around. You need to ask the child... Now I'm going to change your diaper. Is that okay? Do you mind? And then, of course, the obvious question would be how they can't talk. How do you know if it's okay or not? You have to look for the proper facial expression. So if the baby looks upset, if the baby's mad, if he's crying, she, he, or she, then you don't change the diaper. Do we all know what happens when you don't change a baby's diaper? To me, that would be abuse. Diaper rash, chafing, right? Oh, but oh no. The abuse is changing the diaper without the baby's permission. You know, there's an old expression, seven days without the word makes one weak. It also makes one very stupid. Imagine how stupid you'll be if you go two weeks, three weeks, a month, a year, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years without the word, then you get really, really, really stupid. And you can have a very high IQ and a high intellect and be a rocket science and still be dumber than a brick if you don't know God and if you don't take heed to his word. And Peter says, as a light that shines in a dark place. Hello? I've just described for you some corners of this dark place. God's confirmed prophetic word, and Jesus is the word, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word, and he has made manifest to us through God's word. That word is the lamp that lights our way in this dark world. So I had uh, my good friend Brian Davis and I, we always have these theological discussions, and a lot of you know him. He's a great guy. He's a great preacher, teacher. And, uh, you know, I know Brian came one time, and I think in his message he said, the word isn't the scriptures, the word is Jesus. Well, he's half right. And we go round and round about this, because Jesus is the word, but the word is also the word. And even the writers of the, in the Bible call it the word of God. But he... He's got, this is a sticking point for him because he feels like it, it detracts from the person of Jesus Christ because ultimately he is the word. He is the ultimate manifestation of God to the human race. 
So we have Jesus who is the Word, and then we have the Word of God, this Holy Scriptures. But the Word of God is the lamp that lights our way in this dark world. So a while back, I think I might have said something like this, and Brian's ministering to one of his nephews, and his nephew's really turned off by, quote, the church and the legalism and how people... They tell him you have to do this, that, and the other thing if you want to be a Christian. But I come at it from the other angle where you don't have to do anything. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. However, if you don't move forward, and we've talked about this in recent weeks, adding to your faith, growing in the Lord, becoming a disciple of Christ, and the word disciple is where we get the word discipline from. So we practice the disciplines of the Christian faith not to please men, not to earn brownie points with God, but we practice the disciplines of the Christian faith so that we will grow in our faith, we will become stronger and stronger and less vulnerable to the attack of the enemy and the things of this world. So again, you could... Become a believer, make that conscious choice, that decision to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, to embrace Him, to invite Him to be the Lord of your life, come and live inside of you, and then go on your merry way. Never ever go to church, never ever study the Bible, and theoretically, you would still go to heaven because... We're saved by grace through faith, not works. But I think you're putting your spiritual condition in extreme jeopardy if you choose to live life that way. The Word of God is the lamp that lights our way in this dark world. And if we choose not to dig deeper into the Word of God, not to explore it, not to meditate upon it as we read about in the Old Testament... Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How many of you have ever gone camping or some other place where it's really dark and you forgot to bring a flashlight? There's got to be more than that. It's not much fun, is it? Stumbling around in the dark. In fact, I was in a movie theater the other day. <gasps> he watches movies? There's, there are some churches where you, if you watch a movie, you're going to hell. I, I've been in some of those. But I went to sit in an area that I don't normally sit in. It was dark. The lights were down. And I tripped over a step I didn't see and racked my leg real good. This is a dark world. If we don't have a lamp, if we don't have a light, the chances are very great that we're going to stumble and fall. You following me here? As a light that shines in a dark place. So if you want to go out into the dark without your light, knock yourself out. Did you get that? Literally. <laughs> knock yourself out! <laughs> Boom! I don't think it's a good idea, do you? We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. 
In fact, if you spend enough time in the darkness, when the light comes on, you can't handle it. It's painful. You spend enough time in the dark, there's a character in the Lord of the Rings, Gollum. Remember him? My precious. Boy, is that demonic. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian. Gollum, he spent all of his time in the darkness and he was this shriveled up, gnarly little demonic creature. And that's what you'll become if you spend all your time in the darkness. We're the children of the light. We're the children of the day. Where does the light come from? It comes from God and from His Word. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. And by the way, not only, as you know, there's darkness in the world, there's darkness within us too. And we need the light and the lamp of God's word to shine on our darkness. Search me, O God, David wrote. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. So we need a light through the darkness of this world. And we need a light shined into our own hearts and minds to expose those hidden things that they may be brought to life so that we don't become a golem. Psalms 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is the word of God true? Then his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And that's why some of the most enlightened people to ever walk this earth have been people like Helen Keller who was a Christian. And if anybody would have a good excuse not to be, it would have been her. Deaf, dumb, and blind. Dumb meaning without speech. That's the old terminology, I guess, for it. Not politically correct today. But men and women who have gone through this life without sight, without the ability to hear or even to speak, and yet through wonderful things like Braille, able to read the Word of God, to commune with God, to have relationship with God, and they can see more than a lot of other people can. Now, we need this light in this world, in this dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is referring here to the second coming of Christ, his millennial kingdom, and ultimately dwelling eternally in the presence of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, it says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We know in part, we prophesy in part. In this life, in this time, our knowledge, our understanding is partial, it's incomplete. Our enlightenment is limited, although we have the enlightenment that we need to come into a saving faith, a personal relationship with God, to secure our place in his eternal kingdom. But when we see him face to face, that enlightenment will be absolute. Revelation 21, 23, the city, the new Jerusalem, which is the ultimate destination of all true believers. Did you know that? 
We talk about living forever in heaven, but our ultimate destination is actually in the city of the New Jerusalem, which will come down out of heaven. 1,500 miles in each direction. Up, down, over, across. A big cube. A glorious city with streets of gold. And it says the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. We just had a big blood moon, didn't we? We won't need a sun or a moon. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. Right now, if you and I were to go into God's presence in these mortal bodies, we'd be incinerated. God is a God of light. He's a God of fire. All through the Bible, we see manifestations of that fiery aspect of God. We're told at the end of the millennium, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, not only will Jesus be there, God the Father will personally make his dwelling place among men and his radiance will be such of the Father and the Son we will need no other means of light no lamp, no sun, no moon, nothing but for this life we need the illumination and enlightenment of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ dwelling within us guiding us, directing us, lighting our path Revelation 22.5 There shall be no night there. I love that. I don't like the night time. I like the daytime. I don't like going to bed. I don't like sleeping. It's a waste of time. You got to have it. But you're not doing anything for seven, eight hours, six, seven, eight hours, however long you sleep. There won't be any night in heaven. And I don't think there's going to be any sleep. We won't need it. It's going to be worship of God 24-7, except there won't be any time. It'll just be eternity. Verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So, Peter lays out some important ground rules here, guidelines for properly interpreting and understanding Bible prophecy and really could apply to all Scripture. But here he specifically speaks about Prophetic scripture, which is one-third of the Bible, by the way. And yet there are some groups out there that say, Oh, no, no, we shouldn't study prophecy. It's too divisive. And there are other groups that say, Well, we shouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit. That's too divisive. Gets too weird. God's a supernatural God. If you're going to embrace God, then you have to embrace the supernatural. All of it. Knowing this first, of first importance, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, or another translation says, one's own interpretation. Oh, nobody ever does that, do they? Nobody ever takes a Scripture and throws their own twist on it and their own interpretation, now do they? Think Joseph Smith. Think uh, Ellen G. White and so forth, all these cult group founders Charles Riley says several meanings are possible here one prophecies must be interpreted in the light of other scriptures is that true yes absolutely two prophecies are often capable of several fulfillments this is also true 
In the Old Testament, there were prophecies that had a, a short-term meaning and a long-term end times meaning. Three, prophecies must be interpreted only with God's help since they were given only as the prophets were moved by God and not by any impulse of man. Is this also true? Yeah. So Ryrie says several meanings are possible. I say all of the above. We have 2,000 years, roughly, more or less, of Orthodox Christianity to draw from. When I say Orthodox, I mean mainstream, mainline, majority belief, theology, the, the founding fathers of the first century church on down through the centuries. We have a continuous chain and train of like-minded men and women who have interpreted the scriptures in the same manner. When we talk about the cardinal beliefs of the faith, the virgin birth of Christ, his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross as the propitiation for the sins of the whole human race, his supernatural resurrection from the dead, ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, all the major cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, there's 2,000 years of agreement by the vast majority of those who have dedicated their lives to studying the Word of God. We have a good solid Christian tradition, tradition to draw from. And so when somebody goes off in left field and says, well, there's no Trinity, Jesus isn't God, and all this sort of thing, then you have to say, wait a minute, well, that goes against what 99% of those, those who have come before us have believed and known and taught. And even beyond that, we have the Old Testament, which is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. We have 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity to draw from with a massive consensus on all major doctrines of the New Testament, not to mention another couple thousand years of Hebraic theology laid out for us in the Old Testament. And the more that's discovered in terms of documentation, Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth, the more that's discovered, the more it's confirmed. Never discredited, never denied, but only supported more and more. So any, listen closely to this next statement, any and all exotic, mystical, private interpretations of Scripture, listen to me now, must be rejected out of hand. You get it? These exotic, mystical, private interpretations of Scripture are the gateways to deception. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers warned was going to happen in the last days. There would be a worldwide deception that would result in a massive apostasy of people departing from the true faith. It's happening before our very eyes happening right now. It's not some futuristic event. It's happening now. In churches all across America and all over the world, people are departing from the true faith. As James says in his one chapter book, that faith which was once for all delivered to all the saints. And what is drawing massive numbers of people away from that is these exotic, mystical, private interpretations of Scripture. The idea being, you need to come and follow me and be a part of my group 
Because I know things that nobody else knows. It's called Gnosticism. It's been around since the first century. It's heretical. Prophecy never came by the will of man. We read next. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. True biblical prophecy, God-breathed, never originates with a human being. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, fantasies. I've been involved with various groups at various times that have practiced a more public version of prophecy, if you will. Although in the New Testament, the major thrust of prophecy is different than it was in the Old Testament. It makes sense. New Covenant, every believer is now personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, prophecy came through a select group of men, the prophets, and it was a foretelling of future events. Now with the completion of the Old and New Testament, we have all the information God wants us to have about what has happened and what's going to happen. So foretelling has been transitioned or transferred into foretelling. Oh, excuse me, I got it backwards. Foretelling. Foretelling of future events. Foretelling means the prophetic gift that the New Testament refers to is primarily a foretelling of those things which God has already spoken. So it, it's, it's like when Jesus taught and the people were amazed because he taught as one with authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. His teaching wasn't just dead. It didn't fall flat on the people like these other men. It had power behind it. The power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit. And that is New Testament prophecy. That is forthtelling. Preaching and teaching the word of God with power and authority. And so these people that say, well, I'm a prophet, you know, I've got... And they get up and they give some prophecy or so-called prophecy. Many times it's coming from their own feelings, their own thoughts, their own emotions, and perhaps their own fantasies. Like, thus saith the Lord, young lady, you're to marry me. Now you're laughing, but I've seen and heard this stuff all my adult life. God told me. God spoke to me. You're the one. Gee, then I don't know what's wrong with me, but I didn't hear that. And then I've, I've seen other people get heartbroken, disappointed because somebody claims to be a prophet and they give a prophecy over them. And this person's waiting and waiting. They're excited, waiting for this thing to happen. And it never happens. And so instead of this great thing happening, they're brokenhearted because they think God lied to them. God didn't lie to you. That false prophet is the one who lied to you. God will never lie to you. God will never lead you astray. Prophecy never came by the will of man. Thus saith the Lord, not thus saith you. That's the second point. It's Peter lays out these ground rules, vitally important ground rules for properly interpreting, interpreting and understanding Bible prophecy. One, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Two, prophecy never came by the will of man. And three, holy men of God spoke. Not perfect men, because there aren't any. But men who were committed, dedicated, sold out to God, and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Not charlatans, fakes, frauds, or gainsayers, as the Bible refers to them, those who are in it for the money. Send in, it's just like Christian fortune telling. Send in your offering, send in your donation, and I will send you a word from the Lord. It's, that stuff is out there. Holy men of God spoke. Again, not perfect, but not flaky either. As they were moved by, this is the fourth point, the Holy Spirit. Or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The origin of all true biblical prophecy is the Spirit of God. Men are just the human instruments. 2 Timothy 3.16, I think we read this last week, but it applies here again today. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or in the NIV it says, God breathed. We've talked about this before. Just like God breathed life into Adam, and he became the first man, the first living human being. And Jesus breathed upon his apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. God breathed into the writers of the Old and New Testament, breathed his words into them, and they wrote down what he told them. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the reason that it is profitable or beneficial for all these things is because it comes from God. Peter wants his readers to know that which is of absolute importance that everything he is teaching in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, everything that Peter is teaching is directly from the mouth of God. And we go back to verse 16 one final time. For we, Peter, the other apostles, the leaders of the New Testament church, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We covered that last week. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that our faith does not rest upon cunningly devised fables, doesn't rest upon the words of men from their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. It, it comes directly from you. That your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You are our light, Father. You are our light, Lord Jesus. And you told us that in turn we are the light of the world. That can only be true if your light is shining in us and through us. Father, help us to be diligent, as we've spoken of these last few weeks, to add to our faith all the things that Peter's laid out for us. The Lord, that we would be true disciples of Christ, not content to simply be saved, but that we would desire, as Paul wrote, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to take it seriously, to make it the highest priority of our lives here on earth, to pursue you, to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to pursue a, a greater and greater understanding of you 
through the study of your word. Lord, not for knowledge's sake, but for sake of knowing you, of having relationship with you, of becoming the men and women of God that you've called us to be so that we can be a light in this world, so that we can avoid the traps that the devil lays out for people, the deceptions, the great apostasy that's coming upon this world, that we will have no part in that, but we will be those who endure to the end and are saved. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning as we prepare to sing our final song and spend some time in fellowship. Lord, that you would draw those by your Spirit who need to come for prayer. Lord, whether it's to confess sins. Uh, your Word says if we confess our sins to one another, we'll be healed. Lord, if it's a need for salvation, deliverance, whatever it might be, physical healing, Lord, that those who are in need of prayer would be prompted by your Spirit to come and receive that ministry this morning as we sing our final song. We give you praise and thanks and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.